0: Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? Good. Hey, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Ephesians chapter 1. We are going to be in the book of Ephesians Um, from now until Easter. We are going to walk through this letter that Paul wrote to really one of his favorite churches that he ever planted, and we're going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, kind of unpacking what he is writing to this church. And um, uh, again, I hope you guys are doing well. It seems like winter has officially settled in, and uh, it's about to get really, really cold, so I hope you guys have accepted that reality of being a Michigander from January. January through March. Um, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for making it out. And I'm really excited about what we have to talk about today. We're going to look at one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. Uh, If you've grown up in church, if you've been around church for a long time, I am sure you have heard or read Ephesians 1 verses 1 through 14. It is all about what is our identity in Christ and what is our purpose. I've titled this message, Who and Why? And what Paul's doing is he is kicking off this letter and he is reminding this church who they are in Christ and why they are in Christ. And um, here's the big question I'm gonna ask you this morning that I want you to wrestle with. We're gonna get to this at the end of our time together. It's this, it's, is your identity disconnected from your purpose? This is what Paul is driving at. This is what we are going to be driving at today. Is your identity who you are? Is it disconnected from your purpose, the why you are? And if you think about it, I think your identity, who you are and your purpose, these are fundamental questions that we all ask ourselves, right? To be human is to wrestle with who am I? What am I good at? Why am I here on this earth? And I think your identity is actually way more closely tied to your purpose than you realize, right? Think about the milestones we celebrate. I, I think it's a combination of who we are and what we do. Like, like let me give you an answer. What about like graduation, right? Isn't, doesn't that have a ton to do with our purpose? I used to be a student. I was a student. My purpose in life was to get educated, to get prepared to go out into the workforce, but that has ended. So we throw a big party and my identity changes. I am now a worker or I'm going into secondary education and, and my role has changed, Right? Think about marriage. right? It's an identity and a purpose shift. Right? I used to be single, but now I'm married. I used to only be responsible for myself. Now I'm responsible for another human life. My family has changed. Who I live with has changed. It's a difference in both who I am and what I'm called to be. right? I think about retirement. That's a big one. right, Man, I used to be a doctor or a lawyer or a cook, and now I'm retired. I'm not working anymore. That has massive implications for both who we are and what we do. Like, I would bet if I were to ask you, how do you describe yourself? You would throw in things that both share who you are and what you do. Like for me, if someone asks, who are you, Cal? I'd say, well, I'm a dad, right? That tells who I am, but it also says these are my responsibilities. I have kids that I'm responsible for, that I parent, that I take care of. I'm a pastor. That means I work at a church. That means I preach on Sundays. It's explaining who I am and what I do. Well, in Paul's letters to the Ephesians, Paul is going to really be pressing into both our identity and purpose as followers of Jesus. What is our ultimate identity and purpose? So look at Ephesians 1, starting at verse 1. Paul starts off with just a a kind of classic greeting that he gives in his letters. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, hey, I'm writing this to you and I'm writing this to the Ephesian believers. Look at verse three. All right, so before we jump into the identity stuff, there's a major thing we've got to get after right in these few verses. And it's the first point in your notes, it's this. We need to be cool with letting God be God. This is how Paul starts. And one of the things you have to do when you preach a passage, you have to ask yourself, are there any major theological issues or problems that I've got to unwind in the text? Well, in Ephesians 1, there is a massive one. Look again at verse 4 says this, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption. Okay, so, so what Paul's doing is, is he's laying out this doctrine of election. And, and I would say that in the history of the church for thousands of years, the biggest fight amongst Christians has to deal with the process of how are people saved? It has been a massive divide. And on one hand, you have the reformers, the, the predestination election camp. And here's what they believe. They believe that God chose us, that God before the foundation of the world, he moves, he chooses who he's going to save. There are some vessels of God that are created for glory and there's some that are created for destruction, but God is the author of salvation. He's the one that chooses The other camp is called the free will camp, and they tend to be, Arminian is a name that is given to them, and they believe that basically God offers salvation to everyone, and it's our responsibility to accept or reject that invitation that the choice ultimately lands with us. And there have been denominations that divided. There's been huge theological debate over basically who is responsible for salvation. Is it God and God alone? Is it man that chooses God? And um, here's what I would say. Um, Ephesians 1 speaks directly into this debate. And my goal in my heart here is not to be disrespectful to people who would view this issue differently than me. I think we can disagree on this and both still sincerely love Jesus and love one another. But as I read Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, sincerely, I struggle to read this or understand the idea that you can honestly read this passage and come away with the conclusion that we choose God, that God does not choose us. Look how clear it is again in the text. Look at verse 4. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption. This would seem to clearly lay out that the impetus, that the, the move towards the other was from God, that before we breathed a breath, we have been predestined to know and love God. And um, here's why I think predestination is so difficult or this doctrine of election is so difficult for us to get our our heads around. Um, It takes all of the control out of our hands and releases it to God. Like, can I be honest with you? If I could choose which one was the reality, I would choose free will all day. Like if you could tell me that I was in control of who got saved and when it came to like my kids, if I just teach them well enough and if I just show them the way of Christ well enough and if I can convince them to to love and trust Jesus that, that I can guarantee their salvation, I would be all over that because that feels like I can control it. The problem with predestination and election is I don't have control. I've got to entrust my children and the people I love to the Lord. I've got to be cool with allowing God to be God, right? We tend to kinda wanna be control freaks, don't we? Kent Hughes writing on this, I think he says it way better than I could. He says this, he says, "'The doctrine of election is a divine revelation, not human speculation. It was not dreamed up by Martin Luther or John Calvin or St. Augustine or by the apostle Paul for that matter. It is not to be set aside as the imagination of some overactive religious minds, but rather humbly accepted as revelation from God. We must never allow our subjective experience of choosing Christ to water down the fact that we would not have chosen him if he did not first choose us. The doctrine of election presents us with a God who defies finite analysis. It is a doctrine that lets God be God. In church, I think one of the greatest lessons we can learn in our lives is we have to have faith and trust that God is good, that he's in control, and allow God to be God. Like I was, we were talking with someone after the service last night, and she's like, I see it in the text. I don't disagree with you. I just really hate it. And and what the kind of common argument against predestination is like, oh, so what you're telling me is that nothing we do matters that God's just up in heaven playing some cosmic game of math and and, and he doesn't care about us at all and nothing we do. He just has made up his mind. Well, I'm not saying that because the interesting thing is, is the Bible also clearly says that God hears our prayers that he leans into us when we pray that we can move the heart of God. So here's what I'm saying. There is absolutely mystery in how it works with God's sovereign plan and how he responds to his creation. What I am saying is, is it's not us to have it complete. It's not on us. It's not our job or, or we don't actually deserve the right to have it all figured out and to be completely comfortable with it. But what we know is, is that Ephesians 1 clearly says, that we have been predestined in Christ. And look at verse five, I don't want you to miss this. It says, in love, he predestined us. And if you take notes in your Bible, underline that word in love, because here's why. Again, it totally destroys the argument that God is somehow absent from creation or doesn't care about us. He's saying, no, no, in love, he moved towards us. In love, he forgave. In love, he sent his son. That the act of predestining is an act of love from the eternal God of the universe. So, so listen, we are not saved because we're smarter than anyone or because we have things figured out that others don't. We have been saved because God first moved towards us in love. And the only right response to that should be humility and adoration of God, amen? Okay, so here's the question. What have we been predestined to in Christ? And what we're gonna look here and see in the text is three or seven realities of our identity in Christ. Here's the first. First is is that we are citizens of heaven because we are in Christ. We are citizens of heaven. Look at verse three. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right, what does that mean? That we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul, from the very, like the third verse, here's what he's saying. He's saying, remember where you belong. Remember what your citizenship is. Get your eyes vertical. He says, you've been given every blessing in the heavenly places. And here's what Paul's trying to say. And this is something that's difficult for us as Americans to relate to. You have to understand in Ephesus, to be a Christian was really, really hard. You were hated you were rejected, there was persecution. In every church that Paul planted, Christians were met with fierce opposition. So what Paul's saying is this, just because life is difficult now for you, just because life is difficult here, don't forget where you really belong. You are citizens of heaven. And and Paul likes to view our reality as we are here, but we're awaiting for the moment that our true reality is made known, that Jesus is already ruling and reigning in heaven. And one day he will return and make the entire world see what is already happening. And we are citizens of that kingdom and have every right and privilege that citizenship would provide. He says this to another church he planted in Philippians 3. He says this, he says, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. And church, when we understand this, there's hope for us in hard seasons, right? Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In difficult times, when it feels like nothing makes sense and life is difficult, we need to remember who we belong to, where we belong, where our citizenship really is. Here's the next thing. Um, In Christ, we are seen. I love this one. Look at verse four. Again, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And what this is saying is, is that God sees us. That even before we existed, that God knew us, he engaged with us, he chose us, that he is intimately involved in our life and in our salvation. And here's the thing that's interesting. There's kind of three main views of God. There's the atheist view, where where there is no God, there is no supernatural, there is no higher being, it's all nonsense, There's the Christian worldview of God. This is, no, that God is creator, he's active, he's sovereign, he's involved in our life, he is very near us. In the middle, there's this thing called agnosticism. And this is the idea that, yeah, I think that God probably exists, but there's no way to get access to him. He's not involved, he's not engaged. He might've started things, but he's left us up to our own devices. And I think church, in a lot of ways, that third one might be the most depressing Like how awful would it be if there was a God out there who just didn't see us, who didn't know us that we couldn't have access to? What if there was no way for us to know our creator? Well, that's not true in Christ. It says that he chose us, that he engages with us, that he loves us, that we are seen. God's deeply involved in your life. Here's the third thing. Um, In Christ, we are in the family. We are in the family. Look at verse five. It says this, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You see it right there in the text? In love, he predestined us for adoption. And listen, I'm not going to talk about this one too much because just a couple weeks ago, if you were here with us for Christmas, you remember I spent an entire week talking about what it means that God is our heavenly father. And so if you want to hear more about that, just go online and listen to that sermon. But here's what I will tell you. What, what it's important to mean that in the sense that we're in the family is this. Um, how many of your kids had snow days this week? Who here had kids with snow days? Right, a bunch of us did. And... and um, it was kind of the kids like surprise third week of Christmas break, right? A week of snow days coming right off Christmas break is a long time for the kids to be home. And there were a couple times where I called Mary and I was like, hey, babe, how are the kids? And she's like, I kind of want to kill them right now, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. Even as she says that, Mary and I were actually getting, a, getting ready to go away for a week. We're going to be out of town next week saying goodbye to the kids. Mary's like an emotional wreck because she loves them so much, right? So even though our kids can drive us crazy, there's nothing we wouldn't do for them. That's God's disposition towards us. Not only has he saved us, but we are his sons and daughters and he delights in us and he is proud of us and he wants us to be near him and he adores us in a way that only a perfect father And by the way, the fact that we are a family has a ton of implications about how we interact with one another, but that's going to come up later in this study, so I'm going to save that for then. Here's the fourth thing we see. In Christ, we are one back. We are one back to God. Look at verse 6. He says this, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's right there in verse seven. It says, in him, we have redemption. It says that we have been redeemed. And to redeem something means you didn't have it but you traded something in to win it back. Like, here's a good example. Um, do me a favor, moms. If you're here and you've dropped your kids off at children's ministry, do you have that tag that you need to redeem them to get them back? Can I, can I see that? Do any of you have it? Hopefully you do, or else you're not getting your kids back, right? Like our security measures say that that for the the purposes of security, when you drop your kids off in children's ministry, we give you a specific tag. And when you pick them up, you turn that into our workers and, and they give you your kid back. You have to redeem the tag. Okay, listen, see what it says in verse seven? How did God win us back? How did God redeem us? It says through his blood that God loved us so much that he had to give himself. He had to send his son to die for our redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Church, that when Jesus was on the cross, in the moment he breathed his last breath, he was both the lamb that was being slaughtered for our sin but he was also the conquering king, winning us back, redeeming us from sin and death and the enemy. That's why he's called both a lion and a lamb. And in church, here's the amazing thing. It's already happened. Ris, you've already been redeemed. It has happened in history. There is nothing that can be done to change the reality that Christ has redeemed us. It's never in doubt. It can never be changed. It is certain forever the trade has happened. The act has occurred. We have been one now and forever. But here's the other thing, and this is verse five, and this is so important to go along with the fact we've been one back, is that we're also forgiven. In Christ, we are forgiven. Look at verse seven. It says that we've been redeemed for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace and here's why it's both is so important that we are both redeemed and forgiven because redeemed is transactional. Redeemed is this is something that God did for us. It's a transaction. It's separate from us. He did this on our behalf, but forgiveness is super relational. So not only has he won us back, but he's healed the relationship. It says in Christ we are completely forgiven. And if you've been a part of our church for a while, you know that we say that there's three different aspects to forgiveness. Forgiveness means three things. It's going to be on the next slide. It's this, oh, it's already up there. It says, don't bring the offense up to that person. If I forgive someone, every time I see them, I'm not going to be rubbing in their face the time they sinned against me. Hey, remember when you really hurt me? Hey, remember when you did that? Hey, remember when you let me down? No, if I've forgiven them, it's done, it's a way, it is not a part of our relationship anymore. The second thing is, is I don't bring up the offense to others. I don't go around dragging that person's reputation through the mud to get back at them for sinning against me or hurting me. And then the third one, which is probably the most difficult for us, is I don't bring the offense up to myself. When I think of that person, I don't frame them through the lens of how they've hurt me. I have forgiven it. I have covered the offense. It is gone. So so here's the amazing thing. Listen, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin and our failure. Psalm 103 says this, so as far as the East is from the West, so does he remove our transgressions from us. Like, Like, listen, we don't just belong to God, but the relationship has been healed. It doesn't do a lot of good to have the title of being married. If you hate your spouse, you don't talk to them and you don't live together anymore. Well, what this is saying is, is, no, no, we have been brought back into the family. We've been won back and there's no relational baggage. Listen, I promise you today, God is not up in heaven talking trash about you to all the angels. He's removed it. It's gone. We are completely forgiven and restored relationally to God. Okay, here's the sixth thing. Um, We're enlightened. Our minds are enlightened. Look at verse eight. It says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Look at verse nine, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. And what Paul's saying is, listen, in Christ, he has opened our eyes and our minds to the reality of who he is and his plan for salvation. All right, church, give me your eyes for a second. This whole fall, we were working through a series on a Christian worldview. And we were kind of comparing and contrasting a Christian worldview with the worldview of our culture, which is secular humanism. And secular humanism is the idea that there is no God, that we are the highest authority, that we should do whatever we want. And the Christian worldview says, no, no, no," that God is good and he's in control and true freedom is not found in doing whatever you want, but it's submitting yourself to the good shepherd who knows what's best for you, that the path to life and joy is found in living out your created purpose to honor and glorify God. Okay, here's what I'm so convinced of. You can only get to that place if God has supernaturally done a work in your heart and opened your eyes and mind to it. Like when you tell the person who doesn't know the Lord, hey, the best plan for you is to follow God, they're gonna look at you like you're crazy. All of us, like the sin nature in us says we should do our own thing. No one should be able to tell us what to do. We know what's best. So listen, as we engage in the people in our life who don't know the Lord, We don't look down on them like we're smarter than them or we have things figured out. No, no, no. We approach them with humility and grace because the only reason we've been able to see the truth of the gospel is because God has supernaturally enlightened our minds. So we do everything we can to represent that gospel well, to point people to Christ and then pray like crazy that God enlightens more minds, amen? He's done that for us. It wasn't a work in our own that we can boast about. Then here's the seventh thing we see. Um, We have been promised much. Or maybe another way to say that is we have an inheritance. says this, it says, "'In him we have obtained an inheritance, "'having been predestined according to the purpose of him "'who works all things according to the counsel of his will, "'so that we who were first to hope in Christ "'might to be to the praise of his glory. "'In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, "'the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, "'you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, "'who is the guarantee of our inheritance "'until we acquire possession of it "'to the praise of his glory.'" What Paul is saying is, is that we've been given an inheritance. We've been given eternal life. We've been given access to God through the Holy Spirit. We've been given a hope that can't be taken away. We've been given eternal security. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been given victory, strength, power, life, all of these things. Just like Alex said this morning, every promise of scripture is ours in Christ. We have been given a rich inheritance. And by the way, this is amazing that God says, I'm going to continue to love, to strengthen you, to be with you, to walk with you, to care for you. I'm going to be engaged in your life every moment till you take your last breath. And that moment you breathe your last breath, you will be with me in glory. By the way, there's a problem in our hearts that we are not more blown away by that reality. It is undeserved. God is amazing far more than we could ever say. And yet so often we take these things for granted. But here's the question I wanna answer today. This is the what we are in Christ. This is our identity. We need to answer the why. Why? Why? Did God give us all of these things? What is the purpose? Well, if you look for it, you actually see it three times in this text. Um, I don't know if you guys picked up on this or not, but verses three through 14, it's like the longest run-on sentence in the entire Bible. It's all one sentence. Paul is so excited. He's just going hard in the paint. And if you look in this sentence, he says the same phrase three times. Did you pick up on it? I'll help you with it. We see it in verse six, we see it in verse 12, and then he ends it in verse 14. And when Paul repeats something three times in one sentence, we need to pay attention because what he's saying is, is I really want you to get this. And what he's telling us is our one singular purpose. And it's this, to the praise of his glory. Glory. Three times you've been given this, you've been redeemed, you've been adopted, you've been forgiven, you've been all of these things for the praise of his glory, for the praise of his glory. You've been given an inheritance, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit for the praise of his glory. He's not just telling us who we are in Christ, he's giving us our purpose, why God has done this, that we would be vessels who would give praise to the glory of God. Okay, so if this is our purpose, we've got to be very, very clear on what it means. What does it mean to the praise of his glory? Well, it it says this, praise, it means recognition, that we would recognize and affirm what God has done. To, To praise someone says, this is true of you, and I see it, and I acknowledge it, and I affirm it. And this idea of glory, it's actually the Greek word doxa, and it means power, splendor, honor, majesty. And what Paul is saying is is the reason we have been saved, the reason God has shown love to us, the reason we have been adopted is so that we would live lives that magnify the power, honor, praise, and majesty of our God. We are created for a purpose and that is to make much of our creator. We have not been given this inheritance just for ourselves that we can put away in a safe and deal with it when we're dead. We've been given a real purpose for the praise of his glory, and this has massive implications for our life. Here are three. The first implication of this purpose is there are no wasted days. As a follower of Jesus Christ, there are no wasted days. So here's what I want you to do I need your help. Um, I want you to, in your mind, picture what your tomorrow looks like. What are you going to be doing? What's on the agenda? What's your schedule? When you start your week on Monday, what are you doing? Do you guys have it? If you have it, say, I've got it. Okay. Listen, whatever it is, whether it's getting in the car early, going to work, whether it's being at high school, whether it's being at home, whatever you're doing in your interaction. So, like, I'm gonna be really honest for me today, after I preach, Um, I'm driving to an airport with my wife. We're getting in the car, we're going to Chicago and and we're gonna take a really late night flight. It's gonna be um, exhausting. Okay, but here's the thing. In whatever you have going on and whatever I have going on in my mind, what I choose to set my mind to and how I interact with the people around me while I'm standing in line in security, how I talk to my wife, how I treat her in my attitude towards the Lord in my thankfulness. I have the ability to go through the process of walking through an airport, giving praise to the glory of God, or I can do it for myself in my own glory, or I can completely neglect why I'm created and just be selfish. Same goes with you and how you act with your coworkers and what you set your mind to. In your disposition, in your attitude, in your work ethic, in who you praise and what you give glory to, you absolutely there's not a wasted day. Tomorrow is an opportunity to live out your created purpose and give praise to the glory of God. And I think so oftentimes you and I settle for something way less, don't we? Which leads to the second implication, and it's this: It's the disconnect in our hearts has an explanation. Um, Do you understand what I'm saying when I'm saying disconnect? Like I think a lot of times we look at verses like Ephesians 1 and we're like, it's awesome that that's true. I love that I'm forgiven and adopted and God sees me and he loves me and he cares about me. I just don't know why he seems so far away. Like if God is good and if he cares about me, why do things seem so difficult? Why does he seem so distant? Why does it seem like I'm always just going through the motions? Why is there a disconnect? Well, let me help try to explain that disconnect we can feel. I'm um, throw up the next slide. This is my son Bo, and uh, this fall, my son Bo tried out and made a, a traveling soccer team. It's the first time we've done travel sports. And uh, he was so excited to make the team. And, and here's the thing: when he made that team, he got a lot of stuff that came along with being a part of that team. He got a home jersey, that's the white jersey you see. He got a red jersey, which is the away jersey. He got soccer shorts, he got soccer socks, he got shin guards, he got a ball, he got a water bottle, he got sweatsuit top and a sweatsuit pants, and he got a gym bag to carry all of his stuff in. As part of being this team, he received a lot of gifts. All right, now let me ask you a question. Say Bo decided, I'm not gonna play for this team. I don't like it, I'm not gonna play, I'm not gonna be part of it. But he still rolled into school every day wearing his soccer jersey and his sweatsuit and his warm ups. There'd be a disconnect there, right? It's like, why are you wearing all of the stuff from the team you don't actually play for? Right? And I think practically, a lot of times this happens in our lives, right? We make the choice to not live to glorify God. We wanna do our own thing. Maybe it's unrepentant sin we haven't confessed of. Maybe it's just choosing to live life through the lens of what makes me happiest. Maybe it's just treating others as just a a vessel to get where you want to go and we don't love others well. And, And then we wonder, it's like, man, I've got all of these things with the purpose to help bring praise to the glory of God, but I'm not doing it and I'm feeling disconnected. Like, I would just humbly and lovingly ask you, if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I feel far from the Lord right now, would you have the humility to look into your heart and honestly ask, am I really trying to glorify God with my life? And I promise you, if you confess that to the Lord and repent in the areas you need to and turn and start living that out practically, listen, if you need people to help talk you through that, come find a pastor, we'd love to do that. You will Change how you feel because our feelings follow our actions. Here's the last one. Um, last implication is, is there's a decision to make today. There's a decision to make today. And, and here's what I would like you to do as we close. Can you just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? I, I want to close really, really reflective. Don't put anything away, don't, don't, don't check out on me right now. When I say that there's a decision to make today, I mean that there's a decision for every single one of us to make. And here's what I mean. One of the things the Bible teaches is that the process of glorifying God, it never ends. And this process of growing in sanctification, it never stops. Paul writes, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. The process is ongoing. So so here's what that means. All of us have a next step that God would want us to take in bringing glory to Him in our lives. Or maybe a better way to say it is this, all of us have a next yes we need to say to God. And so what I wanna do is I just wanna give us a minute before we leave. We're starting a new year. We're starting a new series. We've just been told who we are in Christ. Here's the question I wanna leave with. What is that next yes you need to say to God? Maybe it's something for you individually. Maybe it's something you would love to see happen in your family. Um, Be really, really transparent. Our small group got together last night. A bunch of us were in the the service last night at our our five o'clock and we made a commitment as guys in our small group that we're going to seek to pray together with our spouses that that had been something that had been dropped over the course of the year, that that was a yes we felt convicted to say to God to. And it's like, all right, we're gonna hold each other accountable in this. And I would encourage you, like talk about this in small group. What is an area? Maybe it's saying no to something that's harmful to your walk with Christ. Maybe it is saying yes to involvement in being a light in the community, in an area God is pulling on your heart. Like, I don't know what that answer is for you, but I know that you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is always going to push us towards growth in Christ. We want to be a church that helps you take that next step, say that next yes. And I would just ask, you know, just humbly pray God, what are you calling me to in this season? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I'm thankful for the gift of your son and this identity we have in him. It is so much better than we could ever imagine. We can't give it justice in our words, but we're so thankful. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.